Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So here we are. We're in, uh, obviously, Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at all 10 verses this morning. But before we get started, I want to ask a question. Um, What is the gospel? Like, and you don't need to obviously shout it out, but I mean, like, think about that for a second. If somebody were to walk up to you and say, I've heard this term, the gospel, can you tell me what that is? Every believer, every born-again Christian ought to be able to, to really be able to tell someone what the gospel is and explain it for what it really is. And I, and I will tell you, I've met many, um, many people, and I've sat down with them that have been in service after service after service, and I've asked that question, they've not been able to articulate it at all. Some people um, just have said, well, it's, it's music, gospel music. Like, okay, yeah, and that's true. There is gospel music, yeah. And, and so I don't know if it's that sometimes that, you know, we're not doing a very good job at explaining what the gospel is. Um, I hope that we are, and, and maybe just that, you know, God is not quickened that in you yet, and you've not been able to grasp that. And so Pastor Brian and I are constantly, and the elders of the church, wanting to make sure that we're clear about what the gospel is and, and what it means. And so one of the things I will say is that when we start to, as we've been studying here in the book of Jonah, and I would say this is true for the whole Old Testament, it's a picture of, of who um, the story of God and what he's done and how he brings himself glory from creation, from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's all this beautiful thing that God is doing and, and recording for us and what he has done, what he is going to do, how he's working now. And the gospel is the central theme of that whole book. The central theme. I mean, so we don't get the gospel right, we won't, we'll miss the whole theme, the whole central theme, the foundational theme of the Bible. So when you say, well, how can we start to say what the gospel is? The first thing we would say is the gospel is good news. That's the translation. It's it's this idea that there's good news, and that's the gospel. The gospel is good news. Now that begs the next question. What's the good news? Like, what is is the good news? If, If the gospel means good news, then what is it? Well, let's back up for a second. Think about this. If the gospel is good news... Why do we need good news? Because we're in the midst of bad news. <laughs> That's why we good news. I mean, anytime somebody says, well, I hope I can get some good news, really that means that something is not good in the world. Something's not good in their life. And I think we can look around the world right now, and I think the, the world could use some good news, right? I mean, I, just turn on the TV, and, and whether it's world affairs, whether it's... Um, Social issues, I mean, world affairs. I mean, Ukraine, 500,000 people have either died or been injured in Ukraine and Russia. Regardless who you think is right, they're, they're both obviously sinful nations and people just like we are. And, and, and so, yes, maybe there's wrong to be assigned certain places clearly, but, but the fact is, is that people are dying because of our, our, our sin against each other. And that's just one microcosm, a very large one in the world, but it's everywhere. Here in the United States, there's, in our governments, there's there's so much sin and rebellion and governments and, you know, political parties and, and my gosh, even in the church, right? I mean, we, we struggle with sin inside the church. I think good news is really important. Like, and, and so the whole 
premise of Scripture is that God is bringing good news to a broken, dying, sinful world. That's the Bible, right? And so why more people don't gravitate towards this, I don't know. God is put the best news out there that we could ever have. The only solution to our problem of sin and shame and guilt is the gospel. Now, notice that I've not said what the good news is. We need to be able to articulate that. And I want to show you here in, I think, in, in the book of Jonah, and it's repeated over and over. There are pieces of the gospel all the way through, all the way through Scripture. So I've said it many times, where do we see the gospel? Let's just give you a couple examples in the Old Testament real quick. In Genesis, God kills an animal and covers their nakedness. That's the gospel. That's a picture of Jesus. Noah, there's judgment, and God provides the ark. That's a picture of Jesus. Joseph and all the brothers, picture of Jesus. Moses at Mount Sinai, praying that he will not, God will not judge all the, the Israelites and kill them all, picture of Jesus. I and mean, we could go on and on and on. And all that is wrapped up in the gospel because that is all good news that God is saving people from his judgment, his righteous judgment. So if there's bad news, what is the bad news for us? What is the bad news in the world? Yes, sin. But on top of that, the reason that there's bad news eternally is because sin deserves judgment. And I would say not just deserves judgment, it will be judged. Sin will always have to be judged by a holy God. All sin. Your sin, even as a believer, your sin will be judged. How it's judged who takes the penalty for that sin depends really on what you do with the good news and how, what you do with it, how you believe in it, what you, what you trust in. And so here in Jonah, it's, it's this, there's so many themes wrapped up here in Jonah in these four chapters, and, and some of them have obviously been kind of repeated. What do we see here? We see Jonah, uh, God gives Jonah a word. He's a prophet. He's supposed to go to these people, this large city called Nineveh, and share that they're going to be judged if they don't turn from their sin. Well, you may say, well, is that good news? Yes, that's good news. That's a picture of the gospel. He's rebellious. Jonah doesn't do it. He gets on a ship. He goes the other direction. God causes a storm. They throw him overboard. Once again, there's a picture here that God is pursuing Jonah and he even works through the disobedience of Jonah, which we looked at two weeks ago, to save the mariners, the, the ship, the people that are working on the ship, the sailors. He works through that whole process and brings them to salvation. The gospel. God working in the world. There was judgment, and he saves. The fish swallowing up Jonah. It's a picture of the gospel. The saving, gracious work of God. He could have drowned, but God saves him. Then Jonah going to Nineveh. It's an opportunity for them to, to repent. It's a picture of the gospel. So, what do we see here is the big idea this morning. What we see here in, in Nineveh that repentance is necessary. God, the first thing that God wants, he, there's, there's sin and God says it's going to be right for me to judge the Ninevites. But Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to Tell them so that they will repent. So what do we see here? Repentance turns away God's judgment. 
and I would say true repentance, but we're going to take for granted that when we say repentance, it's true. Repentance turns away God's judgment. And so we see that. Now, I want to kind of just say a few words about what we're going to quickly go through here in the text. Um, This is a very small book, four little chapters. And today, when we look at these 10 verses in chapter 3, what you're going to see is that there's some places that God doesn't say much. The Word doesn't say much about certain things. In other words, this whole thing is about going to Nineveh to tell them they must repent. And you know there's like one line in here that says that. One line that says what he tells them. We don't know how long Jonah spends in the city. We don't know what he says exactly. He says one little line here and that's it. And I think one of the things that we need to remember here and take away from this is that what God is really doing is he's making sure that the large points are clear. It's a very succinct book. It's a very clear that these are the major themes that God is laying out there. One of obedience, one that that Jonah needs to be obedient, and he wasn't obedient. One of grace, that God forgives Jonah and still calls Jonah to go a second time. You're going to see that. One that we see that there's righteous judgment. It was right that God would judge the Ninevites for their sin. There's great mercy and grace that he sends someone to this sinful pagan people that Micah just talked about and tells them of their sins so that they can repent, so that judgment will be turned away. Those are all pictures and pieces of the gospel. And so as we go through this, you're going to see these pieces. We're just going to name several pieces as we kind of see them as all part of the integral part of the gospel. So let's dive into verse 1 and 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. All right, so here we see that, that God, once again, now he's already called to Jonah the first time, right? Now it's a second time. So let's, let's go back and look at what he said in the beginning of the book, that Jonah's first call says, the word of the Lord, this is in Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Now the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For evil has come up before me. Almost exactly, the first line or two is exactly the same. Exactly the same. The first time, Jonah rejected it. He didn't go. He fleed. He flew the other direction. Now he is honoring it. He says, it came to a second time, arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it and the message that I tell you. Now, notice that here it says the message that I tell you. That in the, 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 the Hebrew there is really... Um, We don't really know the tense of it. In other words, is he saying, I've told you this message and now you need to go tell them? Or is it, you go and when you get there, I'll tell you? I think in the context, when we look at the language, it's really best to to think of it that way. I don't think that God has told him exactly what he's going to say here. He said, you go and I'll tell you the message, what you need to tell them. Now, when you think about that, have you ever, like, struggle to share the gospel with somebody or share spiritual truths with somebody because you're like, I don't know what to say. I just, you know, I don't know what to say. And, you know, my kids come up or my neighbor comes up and asks me a spiritual question. I just don't know what to say. Well, obviously we need to study scripture. We need to hide the word in our hearts. Psalm 119, we need to meditate on the word so that helps do that. But once we've hit it there, we want to trust that the Lord will kind of help remind us where we need to go in the gospel what we need to say to somebody, 
Then now you got to hide the word there. He's not going to bring something up. I said this a few weeks ago. He's not going to recall the scripture that you've not memorized, you've not hidden there, right? But I will tell you that when I do counseling or when I sit and talk to someone, I don't know where I'm going all the time. If you know me, I like to talk, and I can tell you I'm not a planner, right? And I'm not going to think of a passage to share with them that I've not hidden in my heart. But if I've hidden it there, I trust the Holy Spirit will bring to my awareness what I need to say, not in revelation, but based on what I've hidden in my heart. And here we kind of see that. God is speaking and telling Jonah. Now, this is probably a little bit more miraculous. He's saying, look, call out against it the message I will tell you. So he's going to speak to him directly. We have the word of God now. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So what do we see here? God is telling him to go to this place and call out against their sin. Why doesn't God just save them? If he loves them and he wants them to be saved, he could just save them. Well, because they need to know about their sin, right? They need to repent. Like I said, the big idea is they need to repent to turn away God's wrath. God's wrath is just and it's good and it's right because they're sinful. And so what do we see here in the text? I think the first thing I want to share with you is repentance is preceded by the proclamation of God's word. People don't repent until they're confronted with God's word. That may seem like a very simple thing, but I think we're going to begin to show you how important that is. People don't repent until they are confronted with God's word. We've talked about this before. The Ten Commandments were given primarily to show people their sin. If you don't know what your sin is, you're not going to turn away from it because you don't even know that it's sin. But when God makes sin clear, then we have the opportunity to, to turn away from it. And so the first thing that needs to happen here in the text, and I would say in our lives, if we want to, to really share the gospel with someone, the first thing we need to do is proclaim it to them. It's too easy to, to say, oh, um, you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and that's wrong, and you shouldn't do that. Well, you haven't proclaimed the gospel at all. You've just judged them based on some works of the law. If, if a student is in school and, and they're struggling with, with gender identity or homosexuality or whatever, and, and another student comes up to him and just kind of gives them the what for about, oh, you shouldn't do that, that's sinful, da 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 well, why? You, you need to proclaim the gospel to them. You need to give them the good news and what the bad news is and, and let God work there, right? And so somebody needs to let them know, though, that what they're doing is not right, but how we do that is important. And the way that we start that process is we proclaim the gospel to them. We let them know that, that God so loved the world that he dies for us, for our sin, because we are sinful, because everybody's sinful. Most people wouldn't argue that with you. Most people are going to agree that, that, that they are corrupt, their flesh is corrupt, and we see that all the time. So what do we see here? Paul talks about this in Romans 10, in verses 14 and 15. It says, how will they call on... Now, think about Jonah here. And, and, now, this is New Testament, so this is, he's going to talk about Jesus here when they're Old Testament, we don't, this isn't, Jesus is not represented here clearly. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the picture here. Because the only way that we can have true repentance is in Christ. But here Paul in the New Testament is going to kind of talk about this. And, and I would think you could see Jonah here and what God is doing with Jonah. 
Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? The Ninevites have never heard that they should repent. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Jonah was sent to preach. And how they're to preach unless they're sent? Jonah was sent by God. As it is written, how beautiful are the... I keep losing my... There we go. So here, Jonah has this beautiful opportunity that God is giving him to go to a a, a city of hundreds of thousands of people and preach the good news that will, if they heed that and if they repent, will spare them from the wrath of God. So what do we see in Jonah 3.3? It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He honored the word of the Lord here. God spoke to him and he went. Now, if you go back to verse 1 or chapter 1, verse 3, What happened the last time the Lord spoke to Jonah? But Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So the first time he flees, the second time, because of all that's happened, because he tried to get on the ship and go, and they threw him overboard, and he got swallowed up by the fish and dumped back near probably Joppa, and now Jonah is being obedient, and he is going and honoring the word of the Lord. So a couple things we see there. One, I want to tell you that there's great hope in that, that couple verses because we can see that disobedience doesn't mean that God just then gives up on us or quits pursuing us or quit, you know, sending us. We're going to fail. Jonah failed. He rebelled miserably. He, he disobeyed God and he sends him and comes back and he, he corrects him. He admonishes him and now he's giving them the same instructions and Jonah goes. So what do we see? Obedience is a choice. Right? Obedience is a choice. Jonah decided not to go the first time, and he went the second time. Now, Jonah, we would say, is a man of God in both situations. He's a believer, and so even as believers every day to follow after Jesus, to follow after God, and to, to worship him, we choose. We choose what to do. And the problem with that is, is that the challenge to that is that our flesh is always wanting us to choose something other than following after Christ. The whole New Testament, Paul's, all his writings are, are basically the, the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Like the flesh want what it wants. It's always going to want what it wants. And that's part of the challenge here that is even in Jonah's life. As a prophet, he wants what he wants. He didn't want to go and preach the gospel to them. He wanted them just to be judged, right? And so he chose to disobey God the first time. I remember growing up, I was 18 years old, and I... I really believe that I was saved and I was 18 years old shortly after my father passed away and I I was not going to church anywhere and I went to see a pastor of a Lutheran church because I was just looking for spiritual counsel and I remember, this was 40 years ago now or 39 years ago, I remember sitting in his office and the only thing I remember of that conversation and I've remembered it ever since is he said this, he says, Raleigh, every day you need to choose to live for Jesus. Like, because I was asking all these big questions and, and he says, Every day, you get up in the morning, the first decision you make, am I going to live for Christ today? That is going to set your compass to what you do with the rest of your day. Don't worry about the, yes, there are things that we can ponder and things, theological things we need to do and and work through and believe and absolutely. But in the trench, every day, the first thing we have to kind of set our compass to and set our focus on and say, today, I'm, I'm going to honor Christ. So before you get out of bed in the morning, I would just ask you to pray that God will help you do that. 
I try to, almost every morning, I try and do that. Before I even get out of bed, I wake up, my alarm goes off, or I'm already awake. And before I get out of bed, I'm asking God to help me live for him today. Because I know my flesh doesn't want to. I know that I'm going to get up and there's going to be all sorts of things that are coming in my life that I don't want to do. Or things I should do and I just I don't want to. Or I'm going to do something that I know is wrong. And so I want to get my focus down. And so it is a choice. Let's pick it up in the second part of verse 3. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in, in breath. Jonah began. What's going on? Right, Paul's gone. Going to the city, going a day's journey. And he called. Again. I don't know what's going on, Paul. I don't know if it's my. Yeah. Dropping a single somehow. Thank you. That's all right. So. Exceedingly great city, three days' journey, and the breath to the city. Okay, there we go. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, before we get to that line, it says there it's a great city. And really, in the Hebrew, what that means is it's a great city to God. That's really what he's saying. It's a great city to God. He's created this world. It's a great city for him. And he's obviously doing something that's very gracious. He's going to come and, and offer repentance to them. The city, it says there that Jonah was a, a day's journey. It was going to be a three days journey to get through the city. Now, the city was probably only, uh, we think, about 60 miles in circumference, about 18 miles across. He said, well, he could make that trip in a day, no problem. But you got to remember, Jonah is possibly going through the city almost in a circle, or he's, he's going in and he's preaching. So it's not like he's just saying, oh, I'm just going to walk straight through it. He could do that. But for him and how he's doing this and how he's speaking, now we don't know how many times Jonah preached. We don't know if he preached one time. We don't know if he preached a hundred times. We don't know how many days he preached. We don't know anything. Because the point of the text is that he was sent and he preached repentance. That's the takeaway. And then it says there, it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the only thing that we see here that he says about what he's supposed to tell them. Don't you love the, the clarity, though, that God gives? 40 days, and you'll be overthrown, right? It's going to happen. It reminds me when we go back to Genesis, and, Gen and God says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It's clarity, God is, does not mix words. It's very clear what we're supposed to do, what our responsibility is. There'll be no one will be able to say, well, I just didn't know. No, God is very clear. The Ninevites, it was very clear that if in 40 days, if they did not repent, he was going to destroy them. Now, we're going to see here that they repent. And you think, well, how does a nation or a city, maybe 600,000 people, we're not sure, or more, and it seems to say that they repented. Now, does that, was it every one of them? We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. Why did they do that based on one prophet coming through and preaching? Not sure. Could be God was just working to bring about that purpose providentially. It could be that, think about this now. Do you think if the whole world was flooded, I and mean, think about this, we're talking 3,000 years ago, that that was still fresh in people's minds? <laughs> if that was a real event? That the God of the Hebrews did that? 
Do you think when they were delivered from Egypt and he killed the Egyptian army and split the Red Sea and fed them and, and then they conquered all the Amalekites and Canaanites in the wilderness? So when you heard of the God of the Hebrews, you may understand who that God was. And so if Jonah comes in and says, hey, I am of the God of the Hebrews and you have 40 days or God is going to judge you. I don't know. Maybe. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you think that was in their minds possibly? Genesis 19 verses 24, it says, Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God's judgment was severe. Maybe they knew that. Maybe they had heard of that. Maybe they realized that. We see this in Romans, this idea of when our hearts are hard. Romans 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what are we seeing here? This, this term overthrown um, is this idea of wrath is coming. Wrath is coming for Nineveh. God's judgment is coming. The only way they can escape that wrath is to repent. We see that in God's wrath and judgment back in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were living in sin and God comes and judged them. And we remember this conversation that Abraham had with God. He says, well, what about 50 people if they're 50 righteous? He said, well, I won't destroy them. Well, what about 45? What about 40? He goes all the way down to 10. He says, even if you find 10, I won't destroy them. So we see that God is gracious, but that his righteous judgment is going to come about on sinful people. And so what do we see here is that there's going to be judgment. This, this is part of the challenge for many of us. Um, we don't think about God's judgment. Um, and, and look, as believers, we shouldn't necessarily worry. But in the pulpit anymore, in a lot of Christian churches, we don't talk about judgment anymore. And yet the Bible is filled with it. I mean, the first major event was they were kicked out of the garden and pronounced that they were going to die and that they were going to be separated from God. And then, what? One kills another and Cain and Abel and Cain gets banished. Judgment. We don't go far and what are we going to see? We're going to see the flood where he floods everything. Judgment. We see judgment in Egypt. We see it all through. We see even judgment on the Israelites when they're disobedient. We see it everywhere. And in the New Testament, Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it, that there will be judgment for those that don't believe. And yet from the pulpit, in many places in our congregations anymore, we don't talk about that. Why is that? I said, it was last week or two weeks ago, We've lost our fear of God, our reverence for God. Just, and I think one of the things is, is that we don't have a fear of judgment. I mean, we don't, we don't think about judgment, so there's no fear. Those two things are tied together. Is that if we, if we understood that there would be judgment, we would have reverence. But because we don't think about that, we never really think about that. We don't hear preaching on that. We really don't have any reverence because we're not afraid. Now, as believers, you would think, well, does God want us to be afraid? No. But he definitely wants us to be reverent. He definitely wants us to 
I mean, even Isaiah, and I know this is a, obviously an Old Testament thing, but when was Isaiah was kind of before the throne, he says he, he was undone. He understood that he was a sinful man. I said this a few weeks ago. What was God teaching the Israelites when they, when they went into the, the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies? You had to do everything a certain way or you could die. You touched the ark and we have evidence of that and they died. And yet today, and I realize we live in the state of grace and Christ has come and, and for those who are believers, Jesus take our penalty. But I still think that, that we should understand what? That God's judgment is real and justified. It is real. Think about this. Nineveh wouldn't have repented unless they understood that judgment was real. That it was really possible that they would be wiped out in 40 days. They wouldn't have repented. When you, when you look back at the, at the shipmates, or the, the sailors on the ship, it says they were exceedingly afraid because of the power of God demonstrated in the storm and also in stopping the storm. And that led them to repentance and to believe and to make sacrifices to the God of the Israelites. And so when we think we're going to remove that judgment from our preaching, we're going to remove that harshness of the Old Testament, and we're just going to love people well, the thing that gets us to place of repentance in our flesh is that reverence, is that understanding that there is judgment. Because the gospel, which is good news, is not good news unless we understand that there's bad news. And bad news is the judgment. Scripture calls it the wrath of God. It motivates us, as it should. God's judgment is real and justified. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed that there would be judgment. They believed that, that something was going to happen if they did not repent. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This idea of believing God here. Um, is, is not, you know, I've, I say this all the time, it's not an intellectual belief. It is not something that we say, well, I, I believe in that. The, the question is really, and I think the way this is really in the, in the language, is it denotes that you're believing that someone, what someone said, and it expresses the idea of trusting in the person, trusting in them, believing it to a point that I'm going to live by it. And so when we say we believe in Jesus, it's one thing to say we believe in Jesus and we go and just live out our life. We say, yeah, I believe who he was, but I, I'm not going to submit to that. I'm not going to trust him with my life and live the way he wants me to live. And, and when we say we believe, and that's the trouble in many in the church. I talked to someone after first service this morning, and, and they have a, a, someone that's close to them that says, well, they've, they've made profession, but they're not living that way at all. And I don't know if they're a believer or not, but we should never assume that they are. We should never assume that they are because we don't see any fruit there. And so here we see that this idea of believing in God means that we trust. We trust in the work of the cross. We trust that Jesus is the only way. We trust that he's going to be the one that forgives us for our sin. And it says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So first of all, from the greatest to the least of them, that means repentance is necessary for everybody. You don't doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't mean your 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 uh, your stature, your profession. It doesn't matter. 
Repentance is necessary for everyone. Everyone stands before God as sinful people unless we're in Christ. Everyone, from the grace to the least. But what are they doing now? So they're believing in God, but they're not just believing in God. They're, they're showing fruit of repentance. They're showing a brokenness in their life. It says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. What, what is that? Well, sackcloth was, was either goat hair or camel hair, and it was material that meant, basically covered their, uh, their groin area, um, and it was uncomfortable but what it was doing in that culture, they, a showing of humility and grief and repentance, you, you turned away from all worldly things, all the comforts. So what do you do? You don't eat. You fast. And, and you, you wear, you take off your normal clothes and you wear this uncomfortable thing. You're, you're trying to demonstrate that you're, you're sorry, you're repentant, that you're, you're almost in denial of all these worldly things. We see this in two different ways. We see what it looks like when Israel believes in God and fears God, and then we see them when they don't. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, when they're trying to get out of, Israel, get out of Egypt and God's delivering them, in Exodus 14, 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Very similar to there where we, they, the sailors see the storm, right? They see it. They see God's power. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Notice that fear came before belief. Something miraculous happens, and then there's a reverence, and then they believe. We see that all through the Old Testament especially. Jesus, even the New Testament, says what? He says, okay, you don't believe in me, but look at the miracles that I did and believe. Believe in them. In other words, he's saying, I've done these incredible things. Don't you see? One of the things is, is that we, we think so badly that, that God is like doing something to bring fear as a bad thing. No, it's a good thing because it causes us to, to challenge and question our life and say, am I living the way I'm supposed to? Is God really real? Because he, he's powerful and he's righteous and I need to repent. But if there is no fear, at least in these contexts, there maybe would be no belief. So what do we see here in Numbers? It's the opposite. Numbers 14, 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. So he's delivered them out of Egypt. He's, he's caused ten plagues. He split the Red Sea. He's fed them manna in the wilderness. And they still don't believe. And many of us would say, well, I would believe if you would let, if I was there, I would have believed. I don't know why they wouldn't believe. No, you wouldn't because the flesh doesn't want to believe. The flesh is wants what it wants. There's always going to be this challenging struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And so what, what I want you to see here is that believing in God is not enough. We must believe and trust in him. Believing in him is not enough. It's putting our trust and our hope in him in the work of the cross. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now we're seeing that the, the leader of the city is removing his robe. What's that signify? 
It's removing his worldly comfort, his wealth. It's this picture of total submission to God. And covered himself with sackcloth. In other words, he covered himself with this other material. And he sat in ashes. What was the point of the ashes? The ashes represented death. Just death. And so what they're saying is, is that I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. This, this, there's judgment coming. I'm going to die. Or I feel like I'm dead. If you're grieving, you've really, you're, you're, you're dead. You feel like you're, you're, you, know, you're, you don't have any hope. Right? It was a common way of expressing, like I said earlier, grief and humility and repentance. We see this here in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now in the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. This is the ash again. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So not only do we see them repenting, but they're confessing their sins to other people, to each other, to God. And they're not only confessing their own sins, they're actually asking forgiveness of their ancestors and their parents and their grandparents and their nation. They're coming before God and and they are grieved over their, their sin. And I just want to say, how much is that true in today's Christian church? Do we grieve over our sin? Do you have any remorse over your sin? Or is it, well, Jesus got that, I'm covered. Now, granted, we live in a state of grace. We're not not living under the law, so we're not going to be judged, God. If we're truly believers, God has taken that penalty and put it on his son, and we are free from that judgment. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to be convicted and remorseful of our sin. We're witnesses in the world. We're we're witnesses to, to lost people. We should want to honor God. And yet I worry that in the church even, in Christian communities, we'd live like the world because we think, well, I've got Jesus, so I'm good. That is not at all what the gospel is. The gospel is to we turn away from those things. Repentance is about turning away from those things. We see it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. It says, then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, and the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We see here in Nehemiah and and also in Daniel this understanding of who God is and our need to, to honor him and reverence him Now, I know that because we live in grace, um, God is not asking us to put on sackcloth and, and repent that way. And praise God for that. Amen. But I do think that there should be some demonstration of our repentance, some grief over our sin, some remorse, some, some actively way of showing our repentance outwardly. And one way is we turn from it, right? We turn from it. Here in Jonah chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, it says, Then he issued, talking about the king, issued and, and published through Nineveh a decree that the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil ways 
from the violence that his hands has and that is in his hands. Now don't get stuck here because you say, well, does that mean every animal had to wear sackcloth? That seems a little ridiculous. I don't know. I think the point here is, is that they, if you look at the text there and you look at the, the actual Hebrew, it's really saying that they didn't take their herds out to the pastures. They didn't take them to water. They were denying their animals all of these things. They were wearing sackcloth. Maybe there were some animals as well that they did something with. But the point is that they were denying even their, their livestock water and food, and grazing, and they were denying themselves, and they were fasting. Why? Because what they were trying to say is, is that we want to come before the Lord, and we want to repent. We want to show God that we are serious about understanding that we are sinful and deserve judgment. And so what do we see here? Repentance requires a turning away from our sin. The whole means of, of repentance, what it means is that we, we see what we're doing wrong, and then we turn away from it. We absolutely decide that this is not the way to live. This is not what God wants, and we turn away from it. So he picks it up in verse 9, and he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice that his his pagans there, they, they weren't sure. They knew that God could judge them, had the right to judge them, and they didn't know that he would repent or, not, or that he would relent, that he would turn from his anger, that maybe he would save them. Because I think they understood, and I think we should understood that mercy is, is only God's to give. We read this in Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now think about this for a second. When we sin, God is not obligated to have mercy on us because we've sinned against the holy God. He has every right to judge. And God is saying here, I will be the one to decide if I want to give mercy. It is for my purposes and my glory that I do this. And so what do we see here? Mercy is completely dependent upon God. And now we think about reverence and, and fear. This is this picture again about we don't, have, we don't have the right to demand anything from God. We are sinful. God has made a way for us, and we can trust that way, but we can't come to God and demand that he have mercy on us. He, in his love, provided his son for us. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what he did, or what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here we see that God is intimately aware of our life. God saw it saw the lives of every one of them. God sees our actions, our, our hearts. We see the Sermon on the Mount. He knows our heart. He basically says, I know you're living this way, but I know really what's in your heart. And what I care about is what's in your heart. I care about what's going on there and what you want and the sin that resides there. And he sees us intimately that way. 
and it says here that God relented. Some of your, some of your translations may say he repented. I think that's a bad translation. It really means he relented. He didn't change his mind. He knew that what he was going to do, but it was all up to them whether they decided to repent. If they would repent, he would relent. He would not do that. And by God's grace, they did repent, and God relented from the disaster. So what do we see here? God is faithful in his response to our repentance. We see that all through Scripture. We know that God's justice is, is right, and it's righteous, and it's just. But when we repent, God is equally faithful to forgive us. He's equally faithful. Where do we see this? 1 John chapter 9, verse 1, verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is able and willing to do that if we will just confess our sins. If we will turn from our sin, he is faithful. And that's what really bothered Jonah so much. He knew that God was that way. He knew he was faithful. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He didn't want them to turn. That's why he didn't want to go. He just didn't want to go. So the question is, is, are you still under judgment? Do you feel in your life that you're under judgment? If you are, if you feel that way, it's a good chance that you're not a born-again believer. You're, because you feel the weight of the law. You feel judgment. You feel that you have to do good for God to, to love you. And I would just encourage you this morning, if, if that is where you're at, please come talk to Pastor Brian or I. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to say, I don't want that. doesn't mean you'll be perfect. doesn't mean you'll live perfectly. It means you have to hate your sin. You have to do war against your flesh because your flesh is always going to want what it wants. I think I said it a couple weeks ago. You're always going to want the last brownie. It's just it's the way it is. You're always going to want the love of money. It's always going to be a challenge for most of us. The love of sexuality and, and doing what we want is always going to be what we want. Fame, we want this. We want what we want all the time. It's always going to be the challenge. And so God says, no, you need to come. You need to ask for forgiveness. And so unless we're in Christ, we are under the judgment. That's what the whole New Testament tells us. The most loving thing we can do, and this is what we, I think as Christians, we, how we do it has to be loving. I'm not saying you, you go and you, you stand on the street corner and you yell at everybody and you tell them they're all going to go to hell unless they come to repentance. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But how do people know that they need to believe the good news if there's no fear of anything? What did God tell Jonah to do? Tell them they were going to perish. What caused them to believe? The fear that they were going to perish. We want to come and say, well, Jesus loves you and that's great and, and that's true. I still think that there needs to, and, and it'd be different if it wasn't in the New Testament, but it's all through the New Testament. Jesus' words. Just, just go look up judgment. Just, you have all these great tools in our, in our phones and our computers, and go look for the word judgment or wrath in the New Testament. See who's talking about it. See what's said about it. It's, many times it's Jesus. And you don't hear that. And the most, and like I said, how we do that 
is important, how, how we do that in love. But they need to know. I mean, think about this. You tell your children that if they um, do X, they're going to be in trouble because you know that's going to keep them from doing it, hopefully. Well, that's kind of what God says. You should do this. This is going to happen. But we don't tell anybody that. But we believe that we should tell our children that because it's going to keep them from doing it. But we don't then tell other people in our life that that's going to happen to them. And then so really they think, well, then I'm okay because I, I gave my life to Christ when I was five years old and I got baptized at six. And yeah, I don't live. I don't go to church. I don't really believe in Jesus really that much, but I did all that stuff. And so I'm good. God is a loving God, I've heard, and so it's all going to be good. That's where our world is at, folks. Everybody just thinks God is loving and it's just gonna, he's going to love everybody. And, and clearly we're not nearly as bad as those people over there in the world or whatever in our life. And so we're good. And that's a lie. That's a lie. We're all sinful. We all have to come to repentance from the greatest to the least. And yet if we don't tell anybody there's anything to be worried about and they can just live their life and just be a good person and that there's no consequence for that, there's no need for good news. There's no need for repentance. And especially as Christians, if we continue to live in sin, willful sin, what are people looking at and saying? Our influence is so important. We're salt. We're, we're supposed to preserve. We're supposed to be flavorful. We're supposed to be different than the world. And when we just live and have no remorse over our sin and, and just can live that way, what are we telling people? What, how are we influencing people? I tell, I tell parents all the time, they're like, you know, and, and what? Coming to church does not save you. God does not take attendance. But if you don't come to church, you're teaching your kids something. You're teaching them it's not that important. You're teaching that whatever they're doing is more important. Even though God has set a time aside for corporate worship and, and prayer and, and all of these things and communion and fellowship and the teaching of the word, and you say, no, I don't, I don't need to really go. Uh, you know, I, I got saved when I was young. I don't really need to go to church. I know there's lots of people out there. What are you really teaching your children? You're teaching them it's not important. You're teaching them... And we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't put our kids with other children that are going to lead them astray in some other area of their life, that they'll do drugs or they'll drink or they'll become sexually active. We would not let them do that because we understand the power of influence. And then I want to tell you that your power is equally as great and to make sure that they are sitting under the teaching of the word and in the fellowship, seeing the body of Christ and all of that. And so what's the takeaway this morning? I just want to explain this a little bit, is that saving repentance is only possible because Christ took the judgment for our sin. Saving repentance, what do I mean by saving repentance? You would think all repentance is saving. Well, we can turn away from bad behavior and it not lead to a relationship with Christ. We can be, um, we can be afraid of something and turn away from it but, and still not truly give our life over to Christ and still be born again. We can, we can do that. But if... It's saving repentance. Even that repentance has, if it's saving repentance, it's all based in the foundation that Christ will or did pay for our sin. So what do I mean by that? Because if these people were really believers in Nineveh and they really did repent and, and believe in Yahweh and really believe, the only way they're in heaven today is that God saved them from their sin 
because of what Christ did, even though it was Old Testament. See, here's the thing. You can repent of your sin, but the sin that you already have committed is on your rap sheet, and you're guilty. You're guilty. And it's great. You've turned from it, and that's a good thing. And God may say, okay, yes, you've turned from it, but see, you're still guilty. You still deserve death. And so the only way we escape that is that Christ comes and he never sins. He, I, was, I was with someone recently and we were talking and, and we were talking about salvation and, and make sure they understood it. And, and we just talked about it. And, and I asked a question. I said, well, does everybody sin? And they said, yes. And I said, does Jesus sin? And they said, well, yes, he was a man. He sins. I'm like, okay. No. No, because he was fully God. If he'd been fully man, he would have. He was fully man and fully God. And so he never sinned. And and so that is the key to the gospel. That is rooted right there as part of the good news. Because Jesus dies a death that he does not need to die. He was not condemned. He was condemned by man, but not by God. And so he rises from the dead because he doesn't deserve to be dead. And then he basically says, if you would trust me, if you believe in me and trust in what I've done, I will take your sin. I will die for you. I will fulfill the rap sheet so that you can go free. So even back in Jonah's time, anybody that's in heaven today is there because Christ did the work of the cross and died for their sin. Not because they repented. That was a piece of the gospel. They turned away from it. They trusted Christ. But what they really are trusting in, and they didn't understand that it was going to be Christ, but they were looking forward to what God was going to do to free them, and it was all done in Jesus. There's no other way to be forgiven and have true saving repentance if it wouldn't be for what Christ does on the cross and taking the judgment. See, judgment is coming, and judgment, it will be just. And every sin will be judged. The question is, will it be judged in you or will it be judged in Jesus? That's the question. But judgment is real and it is coming and it is just. And the question is, where will justice be levied in your life? On you or on your Savior? And do you trust that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I know that these are hard truths, and for many, things we don't like to think about. Father, we don't want to come and put ourselves under the law. That's not what we're saying. But what we do want to be clear is that if we haven't been found in Christ, if we haven't been born again, we are under the law. And there will be judgment for those people that are not in Christ, that are still under the law. And so, Father, today I pray that we will trust in you, in the work of Jesus, in his life and death and sinless life and his resurrection. And that we will turn away from the sin in our life. We will hate our sin. That we will do things and be with the church family and sit under teaching as accountability so that we will continue to to stay free from that sinful life. Father, we will always struggle with it glorification, but Father, help us to, to be wise in how we live. 
Father, help us not to be afraid to share the gospel. You sent Jonah to a pagan city. Father, we live in a world that is filled with unbelief. People that do not know you, people that judgment is waiting for. As you say, they are storing up wrath for themselves. Father, help us to lovingly share the gospel, the good news. But Father, the good news doesn't make any sense unless they understand what we deserve. Give us wisdom in how we rightly do that, how we are full of grace but yet seasoned with salt, as Paul tells us in Colossians. And Father, because we know that when we understand that there's a penalty for sin, then there is motivation to turn from it. And you have made a way. You've loved us by sending your son into the world to die in our place. May we take great joy in knowing that this morning as we leave from this place. Help us to go into a hurting world as Jonah did. Help our hearts not to be hard. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our time together today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.